Welcome to Civil Discourse. This podcast will use government documents to illuminate the workings of the American government and offer context around the effects of government agencies in your everyday life. And now your hosts, Nia Rogers, public affairs librarian, and Dr. John Augenbaugh, political science professor. Hey, Augie. Good morning, Nia. How are you? I'm good. You sound a little froggy. <laughs> we have been de- dealing with various and sundry um, physical maladies. <laughs> That's what comes from having children. I am uh, given to understand that children are germ factories until uh, they that, reach a certain age. That is the case. Um, and uh, uh, at the time when we are recording this episode, uh, my daughter has been sick. Um, and, uh, of course, um, you know, within a couple of days, um, whatever <laughs> she got, um, I she have generously gives to you. Uh, yes. Um, <laughs> Don't but, say you know, she doesn't give you things cause she gives you things all the time. Well, and, and, you know, Hey, you know, she's still at a point to where she still wants to hug her daddy. Um, hey, hold on to that as long as you can. <laughs> yeah, right? Right. At some point she's, you're going to be the worst person in the world. <laughs> yeah, right. So, um, um, you know, uh, the, the, the downside, of course, is um, whatever uh, nastiness led to her having a, uh, a cough um, has led to me having a cough. So, um, so, I w- so thank you for recording with me because I, I'm intrigued to keep going with our series. Ah, and, yes. And I know that this time we're doing the, we're, well, we're doing a a combination, right? Because we're doing the Department of War, which later became the Department of Defense, which I think is interesting just from a from a language point of view, right? Because one of those implies something very different than the other, war versus defense. But I wanted to, I want to start by asking you a question. Okay. In your notes, <coughs> excuse me, in your notes, you talk about the Department of War tracing its origins back to 1775, which, of course, as we all know, is the revolution, right? We've, even at minimal school, we have learned that. Um, but I'm intrigued because it wasn't a department, because there was no such thing as the United States, right? So yes. there was no president. There was no secretary. So what do you mean by tracing it back to, to the war? Most historians of the Secretary of the Department of War argue that the idea of war has always been a significant bureaucratic or governing concern of uh, what we refer to as the United States. Okay, um, and the evidence what, of wait. this. <clears throat> wait, so we've been feisted all along. Uh, you know, for <laughs> as a number of historians have pointed out, for a nation that claims to be peace loving, we're pretty feisty. Um, <laughs> um, for um, you know, I saw one historian who's calculated that well over 80% of our history we've been fighting wars. I can I just give you a visual I have on this with you with Americans. Have you seen the film Midnight Cowboy? Mm-hmm. There's a there's a scene where John Voight and, and Dustin Hoffman are walking across a street in New York and a cab pulls up into the sidewalk into the crosswalk where they are walking and and Hoffman 
slams his hand down on the hood of the car and he says, I'm walking here, I'm walking here, right? And it's a it's sort of a famous, because John Voight's from the country and he's never been to a city, right? And, he, and, he, and Hoffman faces down a car, which could easily run him and Voight over and kill them both. But he sort of wins that confrontation and it's a memorable moment in, in cinema visually. And I picture that as the United States. Like sometimes we just <laughs> we just slam the hood of something and yell, I'm walking here, and we expect everybody to stop for us. And, you know, and that's not and always think, a bad thing, but sometimes it is. And and I think, you know, some of it is, I mean, you gotta put it in the context of when these committees were created in 1775. Right, that's separate from this. I'm thinking about older United States, but this is baby United States. But I mean, it may be hardwired into our political culture, Nia, Hmm. that um, uh, one of the ways you gain respect around the world is not putting up with other nation states, um, you know, for lack of a better phrase, BS. Okay, that's true. Uh, it goes to the Roosevelt carry, you know, speak softly, yeah, but carry a big carry stick. A big stick. That's Teddy Roosevelt's uh, infamous quote, right? Um, okay. That you know, uh, both in World War One and World War Two, um, uh, what Axis powers generally feared about the United States was not necessarily that we were great at fighting. It's just that we bring such resources, such size, okay, you know, to the fight. And okay? relative unpredictability, as, yes. as as the British, to their misfortune, discovered in re- the revolution. Yeah. We don't fight in a straight line. Like, no. we don't. And, and, and if you look we're at We're like, the well, y'all are silly to line up because that just makes you a bigger target. What are you doing? <laughs> and if you look at the committees, exactly. You had a committee to secure ammunition. You had a a committee to raise funds for gunpowder. And then you had a committee to organize a national militia, right? So, you know- Which is really pretty clever without a a national government. Yeah, without a national government infrastructure, right? So, you know, for many historians, the origin of the secretary or the Department of War predates the country, right? It predates right. the country, and um, and uh, uh, and there was very little debate, Nia, in the first United States Congress about quote unquote creating a Department of War because the expectation was. At some point in time, Great Britain was going to <laughs> reclaim or want to reclaim the colonies. That France, okay, would wait until the Brits in this new country fought amongst themselves, tired themselves out, and then France could come in and claim, you know, huge parts of this, you know, Western hemisphere. And, or Spain. You know, yeah. And then and listeners. Spain don't was already in Mexico yes, and what, what is now Texas. But also Florida, right? Right. So, I mean, this is a nation that was founded in many ways, okay, in a period where you had colonial superpowers 
um, that were very, very skeptical that the new nation um, would be able to survive. Um, and in the, in the colonial revolutionary experience, taught the framers many immutable, if you will, lessons. And you see it, we've already discussed many of them in regards to the United States Constitution and how it's structured, et cetera. But you also see this in regards to um, uh, some of the first departments that were created, state, treasury, and war. And so was war 1789 as well? Uh, yes, yes it okay. was, yep, yep. Um, Yep. And I know later it, it in like in the 1900s, you get defense. Post-World War II. So yeah. we have so we have the War Department or the Department of War. And I know it, it it had been called both of those things. And the reason I know it had been called both of those things is if you um, listeners would like to look at government documents, one of the things that have, happens with government documents is that they are organized by the agency that produces them. So if you have documents that were produced before 1950 or what is late 1940s, they will be under W because that's the War Department. Yes. And then after that, they are under D, which is the Defense Department, Department of Defense, because they change agency names and they change agency production. Uh, I know you could argue that that's not a good way to organize things, but it is how government documents are organized. And it's kind of cool because you can see through time where agencies go, where, where they where they shift ownership, because um as as Augie will get into later, the the Department of War slash Defense was also in charge of Indian Affairs for a while, right? Yes. Until that became its own thing. Uh, well, first under the Interior and then under, under its own thing. So you have all these these shifts in that. But I think that's a cool thing that you can actually trace in the documents of the of the that they created. Um, and by the by. All agencies have created documents since very early on. You have lists of things. You have people in certain offices, right? And, and all that kind of stuff had to be reported because transparency was a big deal from the very beginning of the country. Everybody was like, okay, if we're going to have a federal government, we want to know what it's doing all the time. We don't want it to sneak up on us and take away our rights because we've had kings and that's what they do. So we want a lot of transparency. So the, I will uh, put a link to the where you can see the, the documents change over and sort of that history, um, I mean, just because I find it interesting. Well, but to your point, Neo, you know, by the time we get to the turn of the 20th century, German sociologist Max Weber had created what he called the ideal type bureaucracy. And one of the characteristics of the ideal type of bureaucracy was the maintenance of extensive, you know, documentation of records. Okay. Right. You know, and that's what governments do, right? That's what governments should do. It's not, okay. I think, what governments always do. I think sometimes yeah. governments conveniently lose things, but um, or inconveniently lose things. So so we get um, so President Washington, who has been General Washington, 
right? Because uh, he's the commander in chief. He was the commander in chief over these committees as well, right? Like he's he he was the commander in chief of the Revolutionary Army, right? Okay. So we fight the war, we eventually win. And in your face, Britain. And you know Washington's plan was to retire to his um, uh, palatial estate in Mount Vernon. Okay, um, but when the Articles of Confederation begin to fail, you get the Constitutional Convention. Um, you have the debate and eventual ratification, and then you have the first presidential election. And Washington is encouraged by both the Federalists and the Anti-Federalists to run for president. And what's really interesting to me, Nia, and, and, and I don't know if you caught it in the, uh, in the notes is, so Washington is picked, or, uh, is elected president. And Did, he, wasn't that what would be traditionally called a complete landslide? Like- Yes, okay. 96% but, of the vote or something like that went to him. But the larger point here that I was trying to get at is- oh, sorry. His first Secretary of War um, was also a retired general, Henry Knox. Okay. And Washington picked him, but the expectation within the Washington administration, but also the United States Congress, okay, was that Washington would have direct date date daily control over the Secretary of War. So unlike the State Department and the Treasury Department run respectively by Jefferson and Hamilton, okay, George Washington had an extensive, if you will, control over the you know, the War Secretary Office, the War Department. And it's very fascinating to me because even Knox, Okay, who agreed to go ahead and be the first Secretary of War, did so with the explicit promise that he would not be responsible for running the department. <laughs> that Washington. So he has was literally a secretary, in yes. the sense of what we think of as the modern word for secretary, meaning because, someone yeah. who keeps things running, but who is not necessarily the boss of. Because the assumption was the, the president of... in Article Two of the Constitution is commander in chief. Ah. So almost early on in our country's history, this idea that the president is in charge of our war department um, takes root. Okay. Well, partly don't don't we have? Uh, I mean, they would have had no examples of countries where that was not the case, right? Because Correct. kings were the leaders of their armies, even if they hired really good generals and yada, 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 they were still considered to be the leader of the army, and they had to go out and at least pretend to fight, even if they didn't fight. So yes. it would have been conceptually outside the realm of their possibility of having what we think of now as a civilian commander-in-chief. Chief, We've now yes. had several commanders-in-chief that don't have military no, is that true? Uh, yes. Um, but don't have military service? Well, I mean, if you think about it, um, uh, Clinton did not. Bush 43 infamously did not. 
Um, right. Um, Obama did not. Donald Trump did not. Did not. Um, and I don't believe Joe Biden did. Okay, so in the modern presidency, we've really See, gotten away from that. Yeah. That but, concept. I mean, but, I mean but, but before that, okay. Is that the um, Henry? No oh, sorry. Yeah, is that ahead. the Henry Knox that Fort Knox is named for? Um, I tried to find that, okay? Um, and um, there are uh, some books that say yes and other books that say no. Okay, so a disputed, uh, it, hard thing I to know. But I would be willing to bet that there's not just one Knox that served honorably yeah. in the military. You know what I mean? Like that's a... But what was, I think, most fascinating in this early period in addition to Washington having such hands-on role as commander-in-chief, was the Department of War actually had a multitude of positions, many more than the State Department and the Treasury Department, <laughs> at least early on, right? So you had two inspectors to oversee the troops. And then Congress during the 1790s also added various ranks. So Major General, Brigadier General, Quartermaster General, a Chaplain, a Paymaster General, a Judge Advocate, an Inspector General, a Physician General, a Paymaster General, okay, um, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I like the Apothecary General. Yes. Which, if you're wondering what an apothecary is, it's a chemist. Yes. It's basically, it's basically the CVS of the early, so, of the early uh, nation. And the other thing that they did almost within the first decade of the War Department is they created two institutions that are still with us today, Neil. Uh, they created the United States Military Academy at West Point and the Army Corps of Engineers, both of which were created in 1802. Well, and West Point's important because, uh, for a number of reasons, but the reason that leaps to my mind is that many of the generals who served in the Civil War had been to West Point. They yes. knew each other from West Point, and they were all trained in the same way at West Point. Yes, they were. Which is why you see battles so many battles in the civil war that aren't really won or lost like i mean they're not real there's no clear winner in many yes. of those battles because people were fighting each other who all knew the same tactics and who were all trained in the same way and who knew each other which does which changes the tenor of the war so so then you so you move into the 19th century uh and almost immediately the United States has a couple of skirmishes slash wars highlighted by the War of 1812, okay? Um, and, and afterwards, wow. okay? Skirmish, except wasn't that when the White House was burned down? I or said skirmishes <laughs> highlighted by the War of 1812. Okay, okay, thank you. But after that war, um, the Secretary of War was led by a well-known um, uh, national politician, John C. Calhoun from why South do, Carolina. Why do I know the name? Uh, because eventually uh, Calhoun argued for uh, Southern states 
being able to nullify uh, federal government actions that the states did not like. Okay, that's yes. why I know the name. Because so, I was reading through your notes and going, that name's really familiar. Yeah, he became the most prominent politician, even more so than Andrew Jackson, for um, developing and espousing the theory of nullification um, as it relates to state-federal government relations. Um, Calhoun did a couple of interesting things as Secretary of War. Um, and this becomes a, a running theme throughout the history of the Department of War. Um, he uh, tried to create a modern system of bureaus, okay? So to give you an example, you mentioned a few moments ago, uh, the Bureau of Indian Affairs was created in 1824, okay? And this was supposed to be the main agency of the federal government to deal with issues regarding Native Americans. And it was until 1849, okay? Um, and that's when Congress transferred it to the Interior Department. But Calhoun got a lot of resistance from uniformed military personnel, because uniformed military personnel, okay, by and large wanted to report to your basic rank system that you see in para or military organizations, right? So, you know, this idea that there would be bureaus run by civilians. Ah. Okay, that military personnel would have to report to has been contested <laughs> or was contested for most of the history of the Department of War. Now, from a bureaucratic sense, it makes all kinds, you know, there's, a, there's an inherent logic, right? It's a democracy, so you want civilians being in charge of even the Department of War. But for many military personnel, this idea that they would have to report to a civilian, okay, who would be in between them and the Secretary of War, who then is between them and the Commander in Chief, just didn't fly all that well. <laughs> okay. I mean, I could see that point of view, I suppose. Uh, like, I come at it from the point of view of I don't want you herring off and starting a war without without my buy-in but but by yeah. the same token I can understand part of I've never served in the military so I'm only observing it from the outside I have a sibling and cousins who've served in the military and it is extraordinarily hierarchical in the sense that you report up to the next guy who reports up to the next guy who reports it like you don't jump the chain of command unless there is a, a an extremely drastic reason to do so that's correct and so i can see where they would say it like chain 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 broken chain broken chain broken chain right where you're where now you're trying to navigate a system that is political. The thing about hierarchy in the military is you take your general's orders because he's the general and you're not. Like That's there's right. there's no question about that. Whereas in the civilian system, we rarely take orders from other people. 
if your your boss doesn't just order you to do something right they ask you in some semi-polite way and you in some semi-polite way say yes because that's how jobs work and i suppose they could order you but it doesn't make the morale work very well in a workplace well, but the military perceive it in the exact opposite. I don't want you to manby-pamby around. Tell me what you want me to do, and then let me go do it, right? Like, And that's particularly the case, uh, uh, Nia, when we move into the late 1800s, early 1900s, and we go to a civil service system ah. where you get your government jobs based on your knowledge, skills, and abilities, and not necessarily who you knew, Right. So the idea that you're a boss appointed by a president or governor or mayor, okay, could just come on in and tell a bunch of career bureaucrats with a whole bunch of, you know, subject matter expertise, well, you're going to do X. Well, many of those bureaucrats are going to be like, <laughs> heck yeah, you well, say. Yeah, right. Yeah, right. I am. Right? Or I'm going to slow walk that until you're gone from here because- yes. I I'm some, here forever and you're Yeah, I have something and, you don't have, which right. is tenure. Right. Okay? <laughs> okay. But back to the War Department. So the War Department in many ways in the 1820s and 30s and 40s was defined by primarily uh, the interaction of the federal government with uh, Native Americans, uh, but also the various um, westward expansion movement, movements, you know, manifest destiny, et cetera, et cetera. But that all changes with what seminal event um, in American history that you mentioned previously. It's gotta be the Civil War. Yes, the Civil War, it's, okay. Which and, makes sense that everything else goes to the wayside when you get to Civil War. Right, like, I mean, who cares about the West? Who cares about the Native Americans? Forgive me, I'm not me being pithy, but at that point, we have a we have a really big fish to fry, which is this thing may completely unravel and come apart. Like, we may not have a national government if if secession happens. We now have at least two countries on this continent. I mean, on yeah. this in this section of the continent, and, and you know the. Put this in context, during the Civil War, during the apex of the Civil War, the Union side had to recruit, train, supply, provide medical care, transportation, and pay for 2 million soldiers, okay? And two million. Two million, okay? That's a lot of people for a very small government. Yes. Okay. to look after um and uh you know so th this was a major undertaking um and um and in even after the war the war department and, and this becomes a theme uh, uh listeners um as we discuss these various cabinet level departments after as the war was winding down <laughs> the department of war ends up picking up some responsibilities that you may not necessarily think would be associated with a quote unquote war department, right? But remembering that at this point, we still don't have a whole bunch of other departments. 
Yes. Okay. Right. Like kitchens. Remember how listeners, how we have already noted that the Department of State was a kitchen sink sort of. Yes. Sort of department. And the Department of Treasury was mildly a kitchen. Mild. It was a, it was a drawer in the kitchen. It was a yeah. junk drawer in the kitchen. Whereas, and then you get war. I mean, if you only have three departments, you're bound to end up with stuff that doesn't, that people go, huh? Because. And, 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 and remember, too, that throughout most of our country's history, you know, one of the dominant features of American political culture was to be very skeptical about growing the federal government. Right. Okay. You don't just so, willy-nilly make departments because it seems like a good idea. That's not so, how this works. Yeah. So, you know, we can stick a particular function in a pre-existing department, okay, because we know that department, right? Right. And we're, and we're, we're not, not theoretically growing the government that Government, way. right? But what I'm talking about here, Nia, is after the war, the War Department took charge of refugees and uh, freedmen. Uh, the uh, freed slaves um, through and, the uh, through the name. Will you say the name of the bureau? Bureau of Refuge, Refugees, Freedmen, and Abandoned Lands. <laughs> yeah, that's what amuses me. Is that last part, abandoned lands? Now I understand why we have to have somebody who's looking after refugees and freedmen, because freed slaves and and refugees from the South needed to be rehomed and integrated, right? They needed to be rehoused, not rehomed. They're not animals. Um, they needed to have a job and a place to be able to make a living and raise family and that sort of thing. So I understand why you would need that. <clears throat> I'm, a, I'm fascinated by the abandoned lands theory because I don't know that very many people were abandoning their lands. I think that that's, an interesting, I would love to know more about the work of that particular bureau. I might dig in on that at some point if, if readers, I mean, if listeners are interested, because I find that somewhat fascinating. I doubt that people really very much abandoned their lands so much as there was confiscation of land. Well, there are two things that were going on there. One was uh, the Union Army would go ahead and take land, okay? Because that's what armies do right. in, war, in war. But you also got to remember, too, that both sides of the Civil War suffered huge casualties. Right. So it would not be unusual for an entire Southern family to have pretty much all the menfolk killed in the war. And at that time, okay, in pretty much every state in the country, Nia, could women actually take ownership of land? Uh, not generally. Okay. So all of a sudden now, legally, the land had become effectively what? Abandoned. I, yeah, yes. just angry. Yes. angry. Anyway, uh, this, but, I, but to, things we of, know now that we didn't know then. But speaking of things that even to this day make people angry, okay, the War Department had a huge role in the reconstruction after the Civil War. Right. Um, because um, the War Department uh, usually had troops in the various Southern states to ensure 
that the southern states did not resume their practices that they fought long and hard for during the Civil War. Okay? Right. Things and like, you know, slavery, indentured servitude, okay, the mistreatment of, you know, any number of groups, right? Yeah, and if you, if you think that the United States has recovered from, from that sort of attitude, you should ask Japan or Germany if that's true, because we still had troops in both of those nations. And it's, it, it's become a friendlier thing than it was, but I mean, right after World War II, we stationed people there to make sure that, that those nations would stay in the losing column and not in the rebuilding column. Well... How do you go ahead and do both? I, I'm sorry, rebuilding their armies. Okay, yeah. We, sorry, you, rebuilding of the army. Because yeah, you, you, you want, want to go to ahead and rebuild this. You want to rebuild the countries because you need them to be active traders in the world. You need them to be active economically in the world. You know, like that's a good thing. And you have to do that I part. I mean, and but you, you saw this in the South, prevent. right? I mean, you know, Nia, you were born and raised in the South. You probably even heard this growing up. Okay, a couple generations removed, you still have Southerners who go ahead and say that uh, the indignity of having uh, War Department troops stationed in our states during Reconstruction, okay, uh, was, you know, uh, a crossing of the line, okay? Um, and, well, it's part of the mythos of the War of Northern Aggression. Sure. Yes. Right. Okay. Is that they left invading yes. troops here? Um, and 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 they remained until 1877. They remained there until 1877, um, and shortly thereafter, um, as been well chronicled, uh, most southern states uh, went from being uh, run by Republican Party governors and state legislatures. Um, uh, to uh, being run by Democratic Party governors and state legislatures. Which, um, remember, folks, means the opposite of what it means now. Yes. Um, <laughs> because Always you know, something I have to run myself, otherwise you and Bill Newman will fuss at me, is that the Republicans yeah. of 1877 were not the Republicans of now. Like, there's a, there's a switch there. Yeah, so, um, but... I mean, otherwise, okay, the War Department um, uh, really shrank dramatically after Reconstruction. I mean, okay. uh, I found this tidbit uh, in my research. By 1890, the United States Army was the smallest and least powerful army of any major power in late 19th century. How many, how many men? The United States Army had 39,000 men. France, by contrast, had an army of over 540,000. Wow. Okay. That is a huge difference. 39,000 is pretty yeah. much the campus of VCU plus about 5,000 people. Yeah, or just think about... Give or the, take. The, the, right, student, like, the, the student population plus the employees. Right. I mean, that would be the entire, uh, we, there's no way yes. we could take any, we might, well, I don't even know if we could take Liechtenstein with that, with that number of people. Um, 
Now, and, and, and you would think, Nia, Well, no that, wonder then that they were a little anxious about potential invasion. And I mean, all along, if you're talking about armies that aren't very big comparatively, at 39,000, uh, you said France had 542,000. Yeah. I yep. feel certain that Britain had at least that many. Well, in particular, uh, uh, Great Britain had a, a, a rather large Navy, naval force, right? Um, which again, reflects the particular uh, geography of that nation. But nevertheless, it really does reflect the American foreign policy well into World War I, which was isolationism. Right. right. We don't want to be messed with by anybody because we don't have enough firepower. We're, like, we're relatively weak. Well, and, 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 and because we're not going to get involved in other nations' disputes, we don't need a large army. Right. Okay. And, and we're and, all the way over here. By the time you get here, we'll, we'll have to yet, figure something out. And you had the Monroe Doctrine, which was uttered by President James Monroe, which basically said to the world powers in the early 1800s, leave the Western Hemisphere alone. Just leave it alone, okay? And if you leave it alone, we're not going to go ahead and get involved in what's going on in continental Europe, okay? So, you know, um, you know, trade-offs. Foreign policy definitely influenced Okay, the shape, size, and purpose of the War Department well into World War I. Um, um, but even though we had a small army, this period of time between the Spanish-American War in 1898 and World War I was, according to many historians, extremely important in regards to the development of the War Department, okay? Uh, because again, there were internal bureaucratic battles, Nia, about how to structure, how to organize the War Department, right? So um, you had Secretary of War, uh, 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 I love this name, Elihu Root, okay? Elihu. Okay. Um, he wanted to appoint a, a kind of chief of staff who would be uh, in charge of planning, okay? Uh, kind of sort of make the War Department more business-like, okay? Um, but some of the generals in the War Department resisted this, okay? Um, it's during this period of time you get the creation of the United States Army War College and the general staff to give further training for the uh, line officers in the military. Um, and uh, they changed the promotion procedures. Um, and Root insisted that staff officers be rotated to line positions and vice versa to make sure that they were familiar with how each part of the War Department actually worked. Okay. No, to make them better leaders. That makes sense. Yes. Okay. Now, his successor as Secretary of War was William Howard Taft. And listeners, you may be familiar <laughs> with Taft, okay, because um, Taft 
eventually became president of the United States. And then after a brief respite, the chief justice of the United States. Okay. And Taft is like me. He, we, we, we're going to hold all the jobs at some point. Yeah, and, and, it, and it's really fascinating. Taft loved being a bureaucrat. He loved being chief justice. He hated being president. Absolutely hated being president. But he loved being a bureaucrat, and he loved running the Supreme Court. Um, can we mention something positive about Elihu Root that yes. that that didn't get mentioned here, but that I, is in your notes and that I really like about him? He organized schools for the specialized branches of the services. So before that, everybody went to West Point. Yes, and you learned you learned all the same techniques regardless of what kind of what part of the military you were you were going to do but there are specialized things that each part of the military does and they're really really good at like if you need somebody to do sort of a well modernly and I know this didn't exist then but modernly um, the marines have different have a different skill set than the um the army or the and navy the, there's a specialized navy group the that, seals the seals right they yes. have a very specialized skill set and the green berets have a very specialized skill set and so when you need a certain task done you turn to these people who have trained deep in this way right deeply competent yes. in this way to get this thing done um Whereas, and there's a different kind of training that comes from artillery than comes from cavalry, right? Uh, it is a wildly different thing to be able to to hit a building from a great distance with with armament from a tank. Like that's a skill set, and you need to go and you need to learn that specialized skill set. And I like that he started that system. I think that he. I mean, I'm assuming he gets lots of credit in the military, but I'll be honest, I did not know his name until today. So, yeah. and, and, and again, it was during his tenure as War Department Secretary that because of the United States victory in the Spanish-American War, um, you had the War Department that was in charge of uh, Cuba for a period of time, um, in charge of the Philippines, um and also in charge of puerto rico yeah and he wrote the charter for the philippines for the, that's right he wrote the charter and then he had his successor um uh, william howard taff who actually um was the commissioner general uh of the philippines that's how uh taff gets on the radar of president roosevelt ah yeah. yep so I, that's just cool right because the yeah Secretary of War is out there doing things like, okay, Cuba, let's figure out how we're going to give this back to you in some sort of um, organized way, right? Like, yes, it's so I think if the Department of State is we as we parachute in and we make the document that makes peace, right? We stop the war. We come in and we say, okay, this is what we're going to do, negotiate the end of a war. But then there are these people who have to figure out the actual handing over of things they've taken. Because as you pointed out, the entire point of war is to take stuff from the other person. 
right? Like that, if I commit more on you, I'm going to break into your house and take all your stuff. And then you're going to break into my house and take all my stuff. And we're going to go back and forth that way until there's some sort of detente worked out by the state department. And then somebody has to figure out how to give back all the stuff yeah, in an organized and, and, way. And you begin to see this with the Spanish-American War. I mean, for that matter, you could even say it occurred during Reconstruction. The War Department is frequently tasked with post-war nation building. Right. Right? Right. Um, and and, and we're still doing that in places and it's like... A, and it's a somewhat controversial task. Right. I mean... I mean, take a look at the global war on terrorism, you know. That's um, where uh, I was going to go with that. And and yeah. the unfortunate way that the United States pulled out of Afghanistan and, or, or has been met with a great deal of anger because yes. that's not how we generally have done this in the past. We don't just generally sort of go, okay, well, good luck with all that. Bye. Um, the way it seemed we were doing in Afghanistan. And so that caused the American, I mean, when you look at the history of the War Department, it really hasn't been done that way. I and mean, then all of a sudden, poof, that's a big, that's a big change in how we remove extricate ourselves from, yeah, from these and, situations previously. Yeah, and, and it reflects, as as many scholars point out, the changing nature of war um, in the 21st century world. Um, um, but um, so there was a lot of stuff going on that you know doesn't capture the attention in history books but you know there was changes afoot in the war department um and uh and i think we're going to go ahead and get to those changes um in our next podcast episode which uh will begin with world war one Okay, World well, War which as far as my, um, ever, whenever I studied history in, in school, uh, that's pretty much what, what we had was there was a revolution, there was a civil war, and then there was World War I, as if there was yes. nothing between those things. But as we see, there's a lot of change in the departments during those times in reaction to the previous events and then gearing up towards the next event. like. And, you know, and then they also reflect changes going on in the country. Right. 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 You know, um, changes going on in the country, but also changes in regards to the United States place in the world. OK. And you see this very, very clearly uh, uh, when we begin our next uh, podcast episode with World War One, because there were some some rather significant changes that would have to take place with the War Department. Well, and with our no longer isolationist. Yes. We don't want to get involved in your U.S. foreign policy. Yep. yep. Right. All tied in there together. Cool. Well, thank you, Augie, so much. I, I, I find these people fascinating and I find the push pull between civilian and military fascinating. This idea of who should be in charge. But I like that it's a civilian that's in charge because I, again, worry about the army getting writing checks that the rest of us have to cash do you know what i mean like i yeah i mean wouldn't it, want military to just say okay I mean, well it, tomorrow we're going to invade canada because it seems like a good idea without us at least having a national discussion about it and in 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 that discussion ties into you know the foundation of most 
modern Western democracies, which is, you know, the social contract. Um, right. You know, if we're going to go ahead and um, um, uh, incur bills that the public is going to have to pay, right. um, the, the public should be able to weigh in on whether or not they want to incur those debts. Yeah, and, and, this, and, is, and this is the ultimate debt here, folks, right? Right. You know, because war departments, okay, um, in post-World War II, Department of Defense, okay, the debts they have the American people pay, okay, are in the lives of our young, our best and our brightest, and our loved ones. Right. Okay? Um, As so, um, Lincoln so beautifully put it, the last full measure of devotion. That's right. Okay. Right. That has to be honored. Yeah. So, but we will really delve into that, uh, listeners, with our next episode. So, thank you, Augie. Thank you, Nia. You've been listening to Civil Discourse, brought to you by VCU Libraries. Opinions expressed are solely the speaker's own and do not reflect the views or opinions of VCU or VCU libraries. Special thanks to the Workshop for Technical Assistance. Music by Isaac Hobson. Find more information at guides.library.vcu.edu slash discourse. As always, no documents were harmed in the making of this podcast.